Hello and welcome back. So episode three of the Tin Men podcast, I have a good friend and researcher, Susie Bennett, who's studying uh, a PhD in male suicide. And we first crossed paths uh, when you sent me an email looking for help and support gathering information on male participants to contribute to a study on male suicide. And we gathered 3,000 stories from men from 80 countries across the world. Uh, And just before we go any further, um, this is obviously a very important subject to both myself and Susie, but it's also quite a distressing one. So we're going to be talking about male suicide and uh, various mental health sort of um, problems within men. So please do feel free to stop the podcast, take breaks, have a cup of tea, uh, and just take this at your own pace. So hello, Susie. We um, have been speaking so long about doing this podcast, and I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for you to finish your research. And I feel like that's an indicator of two different things. First of all, my my impatience, but also your fastidious nature to getting the data right. And it sort of indicates on how much data you, you've gathered through our sort of partnership. So maybe uh, we can get a little introduction to who you are and how we came to be on this podcast together. Mm. Um, well, thank, thank you, George, for having me. It's thrilled to be here and thrilled to be talking to you. I love the work that you do and I love... Um, the audience that you have. So this is a real honor for me to be here. Um, So I am Susie. I'm a third year PhD student at the Suicide Behavior Research Lab at Glasgow Uni, which is one of the few research labs around the world that's looking exclusively at um, suicide behavior. And what Mm. I'm primarily interested in is how um, society and culture impact our psychology, how they impact how we think and how we feel, how they impact our relationships with other people, how they impact our behavior in the world. So I'm interested in how society and culture impacts um, men who are suicidal, the potential impact it has on the level of despair that they feel, and also critically um, wanting to identify what are some of the things that we can change within our societies and cultures mm. to support men who are suicidal, to live with less pain, with more dignity, more agency, more hope. Doing various studies basically to explore that. And one of those is a um, survey looking at different suicide risk factors and recovery factors. And I was posting that survey in all sorts of different places to um, reach different audiences with it. And I posted it on a sub uh, a subreddit. I think it's a sub on Reddit. I'm you can tell my age and it's not my uh I think that's left 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 wing male advocates, I believe. That's the one I'm I'm most active on. So a quick shout out to them. George, I have to give a shout out to Reddit in general. I think I posted in in the end on about 30 different stubs, maybe more. And I was nervous about it because Mm. I don't use Reddit. And I kind of had this idea that I just didn't know what the reaction would be to this woman coming into these subs being like, I want to look at male suicide. And I, the response I, I got was, I mean, I'm still trying to process it. It was so deeply uh, moving. And, and anyway... Um, if, I'm, if I can quickly come in in total agreement, I, I also love Reddit, but it's, of, it's often framed as this sort of incel culture, sort of woman-hating thing. And it's like, it's just not true. At least, I mean, those exist for sure, but the, one, the part of it I'm interested in and engaged with is a very progressive thinking, compassionate, welcoming community of, of, of so the people i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them so any compliments you pay to me you are inadvertently paying to reddit too and they they are so interesting and engaging and articulate and intelligent and i hate it when people are like oh misogynistic incel I'm like, they exist but so does in like all things a very wholesome progressive compassionate voice too and i feel like that's where we we met but sorry continue no, I, just, I agree wholeheartedly. And I, I was going to add what you said as well. Unbelievably smart. Mm. Yeah, so much smarter than me. I'm like embarrassed. So much. Yeah, so much. And um, anyway, lo- lots of people were um, sending me stuff, which is amazing. Like, it's so helpful for me and for my work. And somebody um, 
that I was talking to said you should uh, check out this guy and the work that he's doing. And so I sent you an email and I said, I can't tell you how many thousands of emails I sent to people and never heard anything back. So it's always just like, um, so, which, you know, is gets a bit demoralizing, but it was so, you mm. know, it was so wonderful that you were instantly kind of really excited about it. And then, yeah. you know, you're, your posts to support it were amazing. And again, like your audience, like the Reddit audience is just, um, you know, it's so moving. It's so energizing. Cause I don't know if you feel like this as well, but it can get lonely at times. Mm. I mean, I were doing a PhD. You are very much on your own. Like you, you know, you're, you're alone with your data and you post yeah. it. And, yeah. Um, it's just so beautiful for me when you can have those, conversations with people and see that it it means something to people and um and you learn all the time well i mean it's i think i think women are very welcome to this conversation when it comes to the advocacy around women we engage in it so openly and without judgment and for for a woman to join what is for lack of a better term like the losing side the one of men is so I find deeply um, warming, but also a little confusing. And this is what I would say to people that maybe are resistant to men's issues is mm. w- once you start to l- listen to it and move into that space, you just will never be the same again. Yeah, totally. You won't look at the world in the same way and you won't, I mean, it just it cracks your heart open and you can't believe the things that you've been living with and not seeing. Yeah. And I know that I'm still, I'm not even really immersed. Do you know what I mean? I'm still, I learn all of the time. And for me, one of the nice things about being a woman studying men is that I'm an eternal student because Mm. it's not my experience. So I'm forever learning. And obviously each, you know, there is no generic kind of male experience. It's different for everybody. So, but to go back to your question of, of why, uh, why suicide and, and men's suicide, um, listen, George, nobody's m- more surprised than me that I'm doing a PhD and now in academia. Like I, this was never on my to-do list or an aspiration, um, whatsoever. And I, um, uh, but basically, you know, um, suicidal feelings and suicidal attempts were part of um, happened to people that I loved and continue to to happen to them. And I would also say, for me, you know, experiencing loved ones in in real distress, you it's it's so disempowering because what you want to do, George, is that you want to reach inside that person that you love and find every ounce of pain that they have and annihilate it. And you can't, you know, you're, you're limited in, in what you can do. And so I think for me, researching this topic kind of became a way to sort of channel those, you know, feelings I had about that, that sort of frustration to be, to be useful and helpful to the Mm. people, um, that I love. And, um, and then why male suicide in particular, I think is, um, you know, I grew, I grew up, I've got uh, a sister who's 14 years younger than me. So we didn't grow up directly together, but I've got three brothers who we are, the four of us are four years apart. So we grew up as an absolute gang and I grew up deeply embedded in male love and care and protection. And I don't know who I would be without that. Like my debt to my brothers is so, you know, phenomenal. Um, and I would also say I'm I'm a lesbian and I have a lot of very I've always had very close friendships with men. And I think there's something that's unique and special about the friendships between men and 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 lesbians because there's a different freedom that exists in in them mm. because there's all the sexual stuff is out the window because it's it's um not a possibility. Um so you get this sort of window of honesty yeah. into into the male experience and I and it just didn't make sense to me 
how the people that were, were the most privileged gender were, were finding something so distressing about yeah. their existences that they couldn't endure it anymore. Like something about that just didn't, um, yeah, you know, didn't make sense to me. And I wanted to understand, uh, you know, what that is. Your, your, you've touched on it so well. Your motives are sort of doubly pure. Like hearing you talk about your brothers and the debt you owe men. And for the record, as a, as a man, you, you've paid it off. Like what you owe men. Trust me, coming from me, a man, you've paid it off plus interest. So thank you very much. Your brothers will be very proud of you. And I'm sure they are. But your, your motives are pure in that sense. But they're also pure because so many women that follow me, of which one in four of them, my followers are women, they're accused of this thing called being a pick me, which is women that are just basically trying to find a male partner by advocating for men. And their 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 question their motives are questioned in in the opposite way. But as a as a lesbian, like you, you avoid both of those things. You're like, Mike, look at me. Like there's, there's like, yeah, it's, it's it's great. Um and have you have you found sort of pushback when you were like, I'm gonna study men and and uniquely men? Like what's what has been the response to your decision to to, to work with men only? I think there was a surprise from some people at the at the beginning because, like I say, it was around the Me Too time, and it wasn't mm. necessarily the um, you know popular choice to um, to make. The thing that I struggle with on a personal level is, like I say, once you. Um, it's it's like a a, a radio frequency like um, male pain, mm. and I didn't hit. I wasn't dialed into the station before, and once you yeah. dial into it, it's yeah. very difficult. I find navigating life and seeing the ease with the comfortability that we now have around uh, deriding men. In yeah. a way that we that we o wouldn't openly so open it's just so it's just so accepted it's just so open to sort of just to hate men and yeah undermine them and and like just the idea that people think that the the correct approach of dealing with men who are suicidal is to call them toxic it's such a ridiculous thing <laughs> such a isn't it's insane um, this is this is this is I find uh, you know frustrating beyond measure because it's also so strange to me i so what i often do is it, i i look at things or when i hear things i think if i took out the word men from what's mm. just been said and put in lesbian yeah how would i feel yeah and for me it's kind of like if people were saying to me oh lesbians need to talk more or show express their feelings more but here's yeah. loads of homophobic stuff that i'm about to say <laughs> yeah I, well, you're not making it's, me feel safe. Uh, yeah. To that, this you know this would be a safe space for me to sh to to share that, and I think yeah. that this is something that's you know I've started to analyze some of the survey responses, and this is something that's coming through a lot is um, how the portrayal of men in the in the media and on social media is. Uh, being very harmful and this this George really I find difficult to be calm about because like I say I'm I'm a gay woman I culturally inherited an identity laden mm. with shame and mm. it's taken decades of my life to excavate all the places that that shame has landed in me and I still am uncovering it to this day the last thing we want to do is drag another um group of people into that uh quagmire mm. like and um we need to be we need to get very very we there's important questions conversations that we need to have george but we can do that in an adult way yeah that isn't um isn't shaming for people and i think that people people kind of don't realize how toxic shame is mm. what that that we you know what that does to people and when you're reading messages from young boys and things that are saying that they feel ashamed of who they are because of what they're reading in the in the media that they're violent that they're mm. you know rapists you know it's it's hard to stay calm and you you know it's it's um 
but it's one of the things, one of the things I've, I, I hate the idea of waking up to, um, but one of the things I've really noticed, and once you've noticed it, you can't unnotice it, is how we only seem to genderize the bad things men do, like male violence, toxic masculinity. Masculinity is defined by the damage it does. And like just yesterday, there was a, a man who was on a zip wire, zip wire in California and the zip wire, I think it broke. And he, he saved the woman who fell with him and he like grabbed onto a harness and he let go of himself and saved her and he died. And that was, that was yesterday. And no one's, no one's ever going to genderize, genderize the heroism and sacrifice of men. No one's like, oh, male, male heroism, male sacrifice. No one ever says that. I remember when like, um, the tragic case of Sarah Everard, it was all about male violence. But again, the, the following week, a young man jumped off London Bridge um, and he tried to save a woman and uh, he died. Yeah. And no one, no one, again, no yeah. one talked about male heroism, male sacrifice, male sort of bravery. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of those things. You'll see it when we talk, when, when news reports about people who intervene, uh, who save lives, it's always vigilantes or passersby or good Samaritans. It's never men. It's never seven men intervene to save this person. And it's so obvious. And once you open your eyes to it, you realize we have this like warped perspective where we, we only define men by the things they do wrong, never by the good of men. Like we would never define any other group of people by being toxic, by their negative actions, especially when they're done by a minority of that group. Um, and it's just so, it's just so difficult to unsee. And I, I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I hadn't thought a few times about just taking everything I do and just putting it into a box and locking it and throwing it into the deepest ocean. It's so difficult to be of the minority that sees things this way. And there's a few times where I have done that and I've always fished it back out and started again. And I take a lot of breaks. I take a lot of breaks. It's so difficult to be the one that's driving into traffic constantly. And it's, it's reassuring for me to have people like you that are just so pure in their intentions and academically sort of sound. And I, I try to surround myself with you people because I am a, a bloody Bachelor of Arts, not a PhD. Uh, so I like to sort of surround myself with people who have expertise and good intentions. Uh, George, you could do a PhD with your eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but actually, what you just said reminded me, there was somebody in the, um, one of the responses to the survey, um, somebody had written, and I found this, so powerful. You know that that saying about if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? And he was saying the tree, the trees are men and the forest is uh, society and nobody's listening and the trees are falling, but they're not making a sound for anybody because nobody uh, is sort of dialed yeah. into it. That's something, yeah. That. I, I, so when I helped promote your survey, I had a lot of people get in contact with me saying they found the experience of filling out your survey extremely difficult, but also very healing. And so many men were like, this is the first time I've ever felt listened to or heard or understood. And it's so heartbreaking that it, it, it takes a survey online for a man who's been abused or suffering of trauma for them to feel finally listened to through a survey, not through friends or family or sort of therapy, but through a survey. And they were like, thank you so much. So I'll pass that thanks on to you now. So thank you, yeah. Susie, for listening to these men, even if it's just for a survey and it, and people found it very healing and difficult, but I found that very saddening, but also quite reassuring that they are being listened to and they're being listened to by people that actually do care and want to help. So I've been doing it the, the most. So the survey was basically a mixture of uh, psychometric measures, which are basically just verified measures of psychological phenomena. So things like questions that measure your self-esteem or your attitude to help seeking, things like that. And then there were also about seven or eight open text questions where I just said, tell me what you, what else do I need to know or what else has has gone on for you? So, and that's generated about 9,000 data points. So what I should say, like the, the response to the survey has been unbelievable. Like, I took a gamble in the sense that it was it was a long survey, and um, you know there was maybe some question marks from people about whether people would give of their time to do that. Often with surveys in academia, you'll put something like a prize draw incentive on it to get people to take part, and I felt very strongly that I did not want to do that. That I 
believe that men want to not just help themselves, but help other men and do that out of, uh, you know, an innate desire to do that. And also to me, it feels kind of crass that you would be like, give me your, you know, give me your trauma and pain for the chance of winning, you know, an iPad. I just, you know, that didn't sit right with me. So, so it was a long survey. There was no prize draw and often surveys tend to be completed by women. So it was kind of like, you know, how's this going to go? And we ended up with just over 3000 respondents um, from like, I think nearly 80 countries and, I mean, George, I'm still trying to process that that's happened. The responses is just unbelievable. Like more or less everybody, just full engagement, full, you know, um, fully giving of themselves to the, to the survey. I do this because I want things to be different. I want things to be different for people. I want things to be different for men. And I don't have the answers to that. You know, I was just sort of a conduit to trying to, uh, I need the men, as it were, to, to give me those answers. So I can't do it, you know, I can't do it on my, on my own in that way. And I just want to say, you know, in case anybody's listening that did do that survey, like just thank you from the, from the bottom of my heart. And the answer, you know, like you said, there were, you know, a couple of messages where people, were sharing and at the end they've written I've never said this to to somebody before and of course that um the gift to have been entrusted with that and then you feel that sense of responsibility of like okay well how how do we carry this forward and there's a there's a there's so many things that need to change and that's the thing that's the thing that can be difficult in terms of and you must feel that in your work as well of like holding on to the hope of um, you know, things being different. Just quickly, for people that don't know, this is a survey that you sent out to sort of talk to men around the world. Uh, any any man over 18 could have filled it out and it was just about getting their experiences of suicidality uh, and then the sort of the factors that are associated with that. But just, just to quickly respond to what you said, there's often this other myth that men aren't able or are unwilling to talk and I feel like the fact that you got 3,000 responses in, to a survey that takes like, like half an hour, I filled it out and it took a long time. Um, men that are willing to do that without the promise of an iPad, it just shows that men are willing to talk. Perhaps the issue is that we aren't willing to listen. And I find it, I get inundated every day by messages from men who want to talk and just aren't listened to. It just doesn't make sense because what we hear is that men aren't willing to talk and I just don't think that's true. I think we are and we just need to be better listeners. Mm. Um, the poverty of listening skills in our world is unbelievable. I know I know. when we did that panel, uh, so we did a panel for those who didn't realise, um, talking to a room of people about male mental health and suicide and I remember straight away the, the host was talking about male privilege Male privilege hurts men too. And it's yeah. just so funny because as a, a white man, I couldn't really respond to it. But you could, yeah. as, a, yeah. as a gay woman, you were like, as a gay yeah. woman. People, <laughs> I've got some passes. Yeah, I know. It's so funny. It's so, again, it doesn't yeah. make sense. And I was like, yeah. thank you for coming in and saying yeah. that. And then you were like, uh, the more and more I work with men who are dealing with suicidal behavior, the more, the more I see through these ideas of male privilege. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what are the misconceptions around uh, male suicidal behavior and, and how do we widen the conversation away from these horrible, these horrible words that just sort of hate on men? And how do we, how do, we do better? And, and what are the myths that you've experienced yourself? I mean, just, to, just to, to go back a bit, George, like I, there's definitely, I, we're all a product of the information that we have. And so we all occupy different positions on the landscape of life. And I'm now positioned on the landscape of life in the land of a particular population of men that experience high distress, high pain. And of course, that impacts my view. If I was on the, the landscape of life working in a uh, refuge that was just for women, it would shape the information I was getting, the things I was seeing every day, it would shape, it would shape my view. But it's very difficult, nigh impossible to be in the 
on the landscape that I inhabit and be able to engage fully with this blanket assertion of male privilege because I just don't see it in my work. And I think the thing, the study that I've completed at the moment is this, that's finished and that's out for review is um, this systematic review. So uh, um, a systematic review is basically when you bring together all the um, existing research that you can find on a topic and um, synthesize the evidence of those um, papers to create a bigger picture to sort of amplify our understanding on an issue. So I was bringing together all the qualitative work on male suicide over the last 20 years and qualitative work just was, it was primarily interviews. And so that was 78 papers with, I think, I think it was about 1,600 plus participants in total. And I was reviewing that, we were reviewing that to look, to identify what do all these papers tell us about male suicide risk and recovery factors. And the biggest finding of that, what we found in 95% of the papers was evidence of cultural norms of masculinity harming men. And I think the thing that I don't, one of the things that I don't think is understood is how deep these norms can get into the psychology of men and impact them in different ways, impact them in, in terms of their, how they think about themselves, what value they put on themselves as a, as a human being in the world, um, impacts a way that they build relationships with other people. And the important thing to stress is that these, this, what was evidence was these external ideas about what men should be that men are socialized in and uh, internalize. They're not findings relating to something inherent to men that is damaging for men. And I know that you talk about this a lot in your work. And I think this distinction is so important to get our heads around this difference between toxic masculinity, which is placing the toxicity inside of men, versus toxic attitudes towards men, which places the toxicness outside of men. And I can speak to you at length about toxic ideas of femininity and how that's impacted um, me and lots of the, you know, the women in my life. We're all kind of um, affected by culture. And the other thing to stress as well is it's not just men socialized in cultural norms of masculinity. All other genders are as well. These norms also affect the way that women relate to men. We also found evidence that they inf impacted the way that health professionals um, related to men, how they read male distress. If a man comes in to a doctor and says in very matter-of-fact terms about what his emotional experience is, because he's not displaying the kind of high effect that we associate with somebody at an imminent point of crisis, he's not read as being sort of in the danger zone, as it were, whereas actually, you know, he is. So these things go very, very, um, very deep. And What's tricky about this sort of work is everybody kind of wants a soundbite of what can we do or how do we understand this? And as I've said to you in the past, you know, I need at least, I mean, I, I said to you in the past, I need an hour, but I'm going to up that to now, you know, I, you need kind of like two hours to like fully sit down yeah. and, and, and look at what's um, going on. And, yeah. you know, what I would love is that we give each other that time and that space. And I, you know, I, because I am a woman, I understand the pain of women as well. And we've talked about this before. Nothing that we're saying is in any way to diminish essential conversations going on about the struggles that women are facing in our, in our worlds. What we're doing is saying, let us have a conversation about this too. We're so deeply in relation to one another, we'll only get through this together by understanding each other's experience more deeply. And like I say, you know, as somebody journeying through their learning of, of the male experience, I just, you know, what I would say to any women listening to this is just, I, I cannot believe the things that I didn't understand about the male experience and the things that I am still learning about it and all those things that are, are still to be, you know, uncovered. Um, 
there was an open text question about tell me some of the risk factors that you that contribute to your suicidal feeling and um a lot of guys were talking about the absence of a romantic relationship and the worry and anxiety around um whether they'd be able to find one how to do that you know we forget the deep we forget the deep humanity of men when they're presented in this sort of caricature limited way in our in our media and um but the demands now of the expectation of how men should be in their interpersonal relationships, which are, you know, which are, which are good in principle, but it's have men been socialized to have the tools to know necessarily um, how to do that? And if they haven't, are we affording them the patience and the space and the opportunity to acquire them? Um Sorry, that was tangential. Oh, I, was just saying, <laughs> I just think it, it, you're a difficult person to interview because normally as an interviewer, you're waiting for someone to lose steam or to make a point <laughs> that isn't interesting and then you jump in. But you're, you've just given me like a, <laughs> a five-minute block of great content. So I'm going to oh. try and address a few things in there. Okay. And perhaps most importantly is what you said about we are not um, sort of overlapping these issues and discussions on top of women. Not only do they, do they exist side by side, but often they are sort of um, symbiotic of one another. The issues that men face, it do impact women, and the issues that women face do impact men, and, and all of us in between. Um, like an example for, I, I, I often talk about fatherlessness um, and the impact of not having um, any male role model in a positive way in the lives of boys during adolescence, be it a father or any male role model, especially in also teachers in school are mostly women. The, the boys that grow up without these positive role, male role models, they, um, they often become, they develop behavioral issues more often uh, and they become more violent in sort of adulthood. And the, and the people they are violent towards are also women. So if we can help solve the issues of fatherlessness, that has an impact on violence against women. And there are so many sort of um, causal loops like that. Um, and then working backwards, you talked about toxic masculinity. And it's, it's frustrating because... The difference between, you mentioned it, the difference between me hating that term and me being in full agreement is it really is just two words. And they are toxic attitudes toward masculinity rather than toxic masculinity itself. And you put it so well, and I just want to repeat what you said, which is toxic masculinity put, puts the toxicity inside men. And it suggests that men are uh, inherently toxic, which they are not. They often become toxic as a result of being exposed to sort of cultural norms or toxic society. And then going back again, it's a question really, you talked about the cultural norms of masculinity and how deeply embedded they are in um, men's mental health and male, male sort of um, suicidal behavior. But what, what are the cultural norms and expectations? Like what are these toxic attitudes you talk about, uh, you found in your research? Like what do we expect of men? This will be a long answer, George. So it's all right, I'm ready. Buckle up. <laughs> So this, in terms of sort of giving you an overview of what we found in the systematic review, um, the first thing to say is that the uh, suicide is an extremely complicated behaviour. It's an amalgamation of different risk factors. So for me, the way that I that helps me to, to sort of conceptualise it is thinking of it as like an orchestra, and each suicide is kind of this individual symphony of sorrow. And you wouldn't look at an orchestra and say it's the violin in the fifth row that's producing the sound. It's not. It's all of the musicians and all of the instruments in conjunction with one another that are making this sound. So I think what the systematic review has helped to do is rather than say this is the melody of that violin in the fifth row, it's saying it's zooming out a bit and going, well, this kind of seems to be the melody that's happening at the, in the brass section, this in the percussion and, and the wind. So it's taking a slightly um, bigger view. And I would say in the systematic review findings, the four key elements of the orchestra are psychological pain, self-concept, emotions and connections with others. And we found evidence of cultural norms of masculinity impacting all of those four areas. And it's important to think of those things um, in relation to one another in the way that they are all interacting. Um, so just to sort of 
operationalize those four things in terms of um, psychological pain. So basically in, in suicide research, there's different theories um, that emphasize different psychological phenomena as being po- important drivers of suicidal behavior. So one theory might say feelings of defeat and entrapment are really important. Another theory might say uh, feelings of uh, thwarted belongingness are really important important drivers. But what almost all these theories say is that psychological pain is key uh, to suicide. Um, Now, when we talk about psychological pain, what I'm talking about in a way is the origin of that pain. So if we were together now, George, and you punch me, my pain system would go off because of something physical that's happened to me. You've hit me. Whereas if, say, once this podcast goes out, let's say my mum listens to it and she calls me up and she says, you know, Susie, that was really embarrassing. You were incoherent. You didn't explain yourself very well. And I feel embarrassed that you're my daughter. Then I would feel pain in response to psychological things. I would feel pain in response to having a negative evaluation of myself. I might think, I'm not very good at my job. I don't do very good research. And I'd feel pain in relation to this key dynamic in my life, my relationship with me and my mum. So um, the other thing to bear in mind about pain is it has a very important evolutionary function. If you didn't have a pain system, you'd die pretty quickly. If there was a fire under your chair right now, George, and you didn't have an internal pain system to say something is hurting, you need to do something, um, that fire would consume you very quickly. Um, So we're not passive to pain. It intrudes upon our well-being and it calls us to take some kind of action. And the way I think about it in terms of suicide is to imagine that every single one of us is carrying around inside a tank of psychological pain. And every single one of us is exposed to different experiences in life that pour pain into that tank. And each one of us is afforded different tools with which to regulate that pain and manage it. And the thing that's important to bear in mind in terms of thinking about suicide is that that pain in that tank gets too full, that it hits capacity. And then when it's too full, it's unendurable. And that threshold for suicidal action um, kicks in. So in terms of male suicide and the cultural norms, what we found was the two kind of key pipelines going into men who were suicidal's tanks of psychological pain was a pipeline in relation to their concepts of self and a pipeline in relation to their relationships with other people, their connections with other people. For those who don't quite understand, what do you mean by concepts of self? Yeah. So concepts of self, what I mean is basically this kind of uniquely, what we think to be a uniquely human ability that I can take as the object of my thoughts, myself, and make evaluations. So I can, after this podcast, have a cup of tea and take as the object of my thoughts, me, and go, did I do a good job? What do I wish I'd answered differently? You know, and that's that's what we're talking about. You know, your ability to evaluate yourself. Am I a good person? Am I effective? Have I done well in the past? So we all carry around these sort of schemas, these ideas about ourselves, who we are, our social value, that both conscious and subconscious, and they shape our behavior. So having a healthy concept of self is important for for functioning well. And these concepts of self are both biologically and culturally rooted. So there's biological components that create this sense of self that we all have, but it's also informed by our cultures. And each culture that you live in will give you different messages about the standards of what a successful and valuable self is. Um, And so what this, what we found in our review is that um, Men who were suicidal's concepts of self were attuned in cultures that dictated specific behaviors and markers of success and social value for, for masculine selves. And failure to achieve those markers negatively impacted on men's self, sense of self. And this was a big thing for me as a woman studying male suicide. One of the big things 
that has shocked me was how powerful feelings of failure can be for men. And I remember a participant from my master's dissertation saying to me, he uh, talking to me about this in depth, and he was saying, in some ways, women are conditioned to fail, which isn't right, but there's an expectation, you know, in that socialization that, that failure will be part of life, whereas men aren't given that expectation. And of course, failure is in it, you know, things will not always go your way. It's inevitable. But what tools have they have men been given to learn to incorporate failure into their lives? Um, so this is the pipeline of concepts of self coming into that psychological pain tank. And then the other pipeline was to do with connections with others. So this is, you know, in relation to the fact that humans are uh, we're deeply social creatures, successful social bonds, successful social belonging is critical to our survival and safety. And I think the thing I want to flag here is it's easy to confuse us being deeply social with us needing to have hundreds of connections. And that's just, you know, not true. It's about quality, not quantity. But there is a need for us to be meaningfully known by at least somebody, some people. And again, what we found in this review is how certain masculine norms for men to be independent, to demonstrate strength, to conceal their emotions, to reject intimacy and vulnerability, basically isolated some men from the protective value that these intimate connections can, can give people. And then lastly, so you've got, we've got our tanks of psychological pain and we've got a pipeline of of concepts of self and a pipeline of connections with others, putting pain into that tank. And then if you imagine at the bottom of the tank, your emotions as a pipeline coming out of that tank. So your ability to be able to identify, process, regulate, manage that pain, to know what's going on for you is a way to take pain out of that tank, to regulate it and stop it building and building and building. And again, we found through our review, harms that cultural norms of masculinity do to men's relationship with their emotions, which means that that pipeline that should be helping you take pain out of your tank isn't working, is getting clogged up. So the pain's not coming out and it's allowing it to build and build at the same time as these cultural norms are impacting how men evaluate themselves, how they build connections with others, it's putting pain. Um, you know, into the tank. For an academic, you have such a great visual language of making these ideas accessible, which is incredibly rare in my experience. But um, to use the other uh, metaphor you used, it's like a fire. Uh, and, and everyone experiences fires. But for men, more often, the fire escape is sort of welded shut and they are unable to get out or it's harder for them to kick that door down. And I would just love to know who is... I mean, it's no one in particular, but who is the one that's holding that door shut? The, what you've just described of there being a fire in the far escape shut is, it's so distressing to think about. I remember in one of the papers I read, somebody had said something like, literally, it was, it was better to be dead than to express vulnerability. Like, that is harrowing. One of the questions in the survey was around, have you ever felt suicidal? Yes or no. If you have, did you seek help? Yes or no. If you didn't, what are some of the barriers to you seeking help? And this is early analysis. So this is all going to shift and become clearer. But here are some of the responses I've had back. And again, let's think about cultural norms of masculinity. So one of the responses is talking is futile. Well, if you've been told your whole life that you don't need to talk and then suddenly culture turns around and goes, you know, sorry, lads, got that wrong. Actually, you do need to talk. Well, I'm sorry, you've already, you know, I've had years and years. For me, I always relate it to like, as a woman, we grew, you know, I grew up, I'm 40 years old. I grew up in the era of like size zero. And now suddenly we're in this culture that's saying, no, we're body positive. You can be any shape and size. But that doesn't mean instantly like me and every woman I know is like, oh, well, we're just, we're just completely 
at peace in our physical selves and ready to celebrate every form. No, we, we've had years and years of conditioning that needs to shift. So I'm not surprised that there's, you know, this attitude that like, I don't understand how talking about my problem is going to help. And it's like not about um, men should talk. It should be about how can we teach men to talk? If someone said to me like, oh, you can, you can speak French if you want. I'll be like, I know I can. I just don't know how to do it. Can you, can, can you take a little bit of time to teach this new language to me? The language of emotional intelligence. And especially when we have this sort of contingent of people who ask men to talk, but then they also talk about male fragility and they have those mugs that are full of male tears. And it's like, why would men talk if you're going to weaponize the things we say against us? Um, and the thing to, to say about emotions as well, George, just it, is it's not just about your ability to externally express emotions to other people, but the thing that's critical for me is your ability to internally identify what the fuck is going on with you. So me pre-therapy, I didn't have words for my internal experience. I remember my partner all the time would ask me, what's going on? You you seem down or what's... And I would be like, I don't know. I just hurt. <laughs> and I don't know. I couldn't, I didn't have any words beyond that. It's like if you were painting a picture and you just had three colors and that's all I had to paint with and kind of through the therapy was helping me, you know, I got different colors for my palette. I could describe with more detail what my emotional experience was which helps me tremendously to regulate the pain in my uh, in my tank so just going back to the help seeking stuff so there's you know this idea that it can be futile this idea that you that men uh, some men feel like they don't have the tools to know how to to do that there was things about fear of being misunderstood um you know, which I think like links back to if you don't feel like you've got the tools to express it, what you're feeling, there's an anxiety then that you may be clumsy in your articulation and somebody will misunderstand what you're trying to say. This, this fear of burdening others, which again, this idea that men need to be independent and strong and therefore this idea that I cannot put my... Uh, I cannot put my problems onto others. I need to be the protector. For some men, a lack of trust in others. Some men, their self-esteem is so decimated, they don't think they're worthy of the attention um, of a help seeker, of a, a health service provider. There's lots of evidence in the survey that, that I've seen of people finding cost prohibitive, the co you know, bad experiences of going to get help, access issues, waiting lists. If a lot of services are during work time, how do they get to it if they don't want to tell their work? For some men, there's, you know, denial about they, they want to deny how bad uh, things are. This I find really interesting, this kind of dissonance between some people saying, if a man came to them and said, this is what's going on for me, they would be totally comfortable saying, you need to go and get help. And they would see no shame in doing that. But applying that rule to themselves, they find impossible, which I also actually yeah. really relate to. Yeah. I, I, so I, much of this is so, oh, you're, like, you're reading my mind. Especially, yeah, like not feeling deserving of someone else's time is something I'm constantly dealing with. Um, yeah. And I think it's just a matter of us not being given emotional space and it will take time. It takes time to learn a new language. Exactly. And I think the language analogy is absolutely, uh, you know, perfect. And then just to finish off, like a, the, a, another thing about talking is like, well, how's that going to fix the structural issues in my life? Mm. If I'm, you know, living in poverty mm. or I've got housing issues or legal issues with my ex-partner that's not allowing me access to my children. Yeah. And then lastly, and this one I find particularly just heartbreaking is that for some men who are feeling suicidal, they have in their mind that talking to somebody might be the thing that helps. But if I try it and it doesn't, what else do I have? Mm. It's like talking is that barrier between yeah. before the cliff edge. And um, so, so the point here that I'm trying to make as well is that 
just taking something like attitudes to help seeking and actually starting to unpack them, you see this hive of complicated things, you know, that are going on, which is, and that's the, that's the time when I feel like, okay, you know, I research as value because it can help to, um, you know, explore those things. Um, I, think, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of talking is great, but not the full solution is some, something, again, I also speak about. And it reminds me of um, the work of uh, another psychologist, um, Amy Chandler. And she talks about, she, she released a research study saying that uh, a lot of men who took their lives did talk, did seek help, but they still died by suicide. And uh, she says something like, um, talking about problems doesn't fix the societal, political, or legal causes of men's pain. Uh, and that's, that comes back to us listening. Like, a, and there's a lot of questions from the community, which I'll put to you later about, uh, specifically about sort of um, men losing custody of their children through sort of institutionally sexist family courts. And talking doesn't solve that problem. That's, that's solved by us acknowledging that there's more to men's issues than talking. And, there's, and it has to be changed as a result of, of listening to that talking. So there's a lot of great work by Dr. Keith Elder, and he wrote a paper called Men's Health Beyond Masculinity. And he writes a lot about sort of physical health, but this is applicable as well to men's mental health. And he said, um, rather than highlighting differential rates of unemployment, gender differences in patterns of care over life course, or the limited infrastructure of men's health programs and services, um, these and other efforts have suggested the problem is in men's head. We have embraced the notion that the health of women and children is shaped by social, economic and environmental determinants of health, but even male policymakers tend to endorse and create policies that presume that men's health is largely a result of men's poor choices and unhealthy behaviours. So again, it's, it's sort of, rather than acknowledging the societal causes of these problems, it's sort of turning the spotlight of blame back onto men and being like, well, men just need to fix this themselves. We are willing to acknowledge the societal causes of women's distress, but with men, it's, they did it to themselves. And I, I, I find that that point of view hijacks the conversation of male suicidality so often. And it's another sort of hurdle we need to get over and uh, move past. Can I just go back just quickly, George, just to go back to the help seeking and say sure. that absolutely, yeah, it it can't change those structural things, mm. but that but it can help you in your ability to deal with the frustration and anguish and pain of those structural things, which I'm not saying yeah. is a is a is a fix all. The other thing I want to say is just to acknowledge that you may well have bad experiences seeking help. Like mm. you take any profession, take academic researchers, take documentary makers, take plumbers, mm. uh, teachers, whatever. You are going to have people that are brilliant at your, their jobs and people that are awful. And unfortunately, there are people in uh, mental health services who aren't good at their jobs. And if you encounter one of those people, it's it's extremely distressing and mm. it may be it may be put you off for life yeah. um from doing that but there are also unbelievably people that i literally i'm on my knees in praise of these people that work in mental health services who are unbelievable at their jobs and i would say to people that are thinking about seeking help please don't be deterred if you have a bad yeah. experience and i know that you probably want to tell me to go fuck myself because it's so exhausting seeking help. And then somebody going, you might need to seek help repeatedly. The other thing is that each one of us is individual. The person that you would feel safe with, George, to, to is maybe different from the person that I would. So, you know, I, I, I do just want to say, like, if you feel like it would be beneficial for, for you, please don't be deterred if you have bad experiences and i'm sorry very sorry that that is your reality as well i think i mean I, I it's comparable to dating like you're gonna go on a lot of bad dates <laughs> you don't you don't go on one date and be like you know what forget about it yeah you, you go again and again and it's perfectly normal to struggle to find someone that works because it is a lot like dating there's that similar level of sort of trust absolutely uh, 
I'm basically going to get naked with you in a, you know, emotionally. emotionally yeah. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going to have to want to feel safe that, that that I can do that. Yeah, don't judge, don't judge my emotional body, my emotional exactly. physique or, or lack of. A lot, there's a really great research study in Australia that talks about why men quit therapy. And the number one cause, unsurprisingly, it's more than all the other causes combined. It's um, they just don't feel a connection with their therapist. And it's so true. Um, going back to sort of opening up why men take their lives. One of, one of the research papers, it's actually not a research paper, it's from the National Violent Death Reporting System, which is some really, really light reading if you want to get into it. And, they, and they, they've looked into why men take their lives. And um, uh, 32% of men who took their life were experiencing intimate partner problems. 14.4% were experiencing financial issues. And 14.8% were having job problems. So we're looking at intimate partner problems, financial issues, and problems at work. So men, you can see what the causes are. And it isn't a hashtag. They're, they're real issues. They, those, are not, those are not surprising. And I wonder, I wonder whether they line up with your research findings, sort of job, status, financial success, intimate partner problems. I mean, how, how does that sound to you? Does that yeah, I mean that all for me. Like going back to that sort of model of the this, the tank of psychological pain. You've got that pipeline of concepts of self, you know, rooted to like your to your status, how well you're doing at your job or not doing at your job, the financial pressure, your ability to provide for your for your family, um, and again that pipeline of connections to others in you know problems in your relationships to others. Absolutely, all things that could be pouring um, pain into your tank. And again, for me, you can potentially root those things back to cultural norms of masculinity, which is, you know, exactly what you're saying about the pressures over men to, um, you know, to provide, to have a job. And, um, um, you know, men are unbelievably insightful, compassionate. I am learning from men all of the time in the work that I do and the insight that men who are suicidal have on themselves, have on society, have on the things that are going wrong that they express to me in their, in the messages and, and things that they share with me is so it's a, this resource that we need, George. And also, you know, for, for some men, the absence of emotional intimacy and how much male status is sort of partly related as well to your sexual romantic success and um, if you feel thwarted in your ability to achieve that, how shaming that can, you know, that can be. I remember having an exchange with somebody on Reddit who was kind of talking about his uh, isolation, loneliness on that front. And it's very distressing to imagine that that's, that you feel unable to achieve that and he was saying it was very difficult for him to have that conversation with people without them assuming that women somehow owed him that or that he was entitled to that and I think that's just like we have to stay listening to one another I need men to listen to the, the experience of women I need men to listen to my experience as a lesbian and I need to extend that courtesy and that compassion back to men. We need to trust that our muscle of compassion is big enough and strong enough to do that. Um, it's, I've it's, gone slightly it's, off point. No, not at all. I mean, it's, you've sort of stumbled into the uh, the treacherous area of, uh, I guess, incels, which again, I find is a often deeply misunderstood community. Mm. And it isn't just about sex. Everyone seems to think it's it's men that, don't have access to sort of um, to romantic relationships, but it's also men that haven't found sort of success in work or money or have sort of fallen through the gaps of social compassion. And they often, these men at their most extreme, they, are, they either turn to violence or suicide. And the vast majority of the people in that incel community are not um, dangerous to anyone other than themselves. It was, it was frustrating because The Guardian wrote an, an article recently about female incels and it had it used the exact correct language. It, it used the language of compassion straight away. It was like these are women that are not seen, that are judged for their appearance, yeah. that are that struggle with being uh, conventionally unattractive, yes. uh, are, are, are struggle with their social issues. They they find it hard to sort of bond with others. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. 
So, I mean, I guess a question for you is that why are we so, why do we limit the male experience so much? Why can't we acknowledge the greater societal impacts that cause this behavior rather than just, again, labeling it as internally toxic to masculinity? Why are we so apprehensive about deepening our understanding of men's experiences? Um, what, an, what an epic question. Difficult uh, one. Yeah. You know, pain is a volatile thing. When you've got a lot of pain in your tank, it's a volatile thing to be carrying around. Whether that you, whether you take that pain and do external behaviours in the world, or you internalise it and do behaviours on yourself, there is, I have to share with you this. This um, somebody said this in response to the survey, and I, for me, this encapsulates everything and this is the the reflection that i would love everybody to do and he wrote and he said at what age does society decide that a boy worthy of love care and protection is now a man and no longer deserving of any and george i had to get up from my computer and just my mind was blown because I was just yeah. like, "Yee's just perfectly distilled everything." At what age does, this, does society decide that a boy worthy of love and comp- care and protection is now a man and no longer deserving of any? I was just like, yeah. "My God, that is that's that kind of thing that just that's the kind of thing that's going to echo in my bones for." decades like you're always I'm always afraid as a lesbian that my rights are going to be taken away again and I see things that are going on in the world in 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 countries around the world or you know homophobic attacks that are happening in the UK and it feeds into that fear and you never quite feel fully safe and I think then it makes it difficult to to um allow space for somebody else's pain in case it somehow derails or or diminishes your safety ultimately. And that puts us then in a very, we forget we're all in relation. I'm a gay woman, but I'm in relation with lots of heterosexual men, with lots of bi men, gay men, trans men, all kinds of different genders and peoples. We're all in relation to one another. We're only going to get out of this fucking shithole, you know, together in solidarity with one another and and also you know George there's I have a friend of mine that follows your page and she was like saying to me that you know a lot of what you post is uncomfortable for her but she you know she still follows it and absorbs the the content but I love that she was just honest about that that it is you kind of, and I found that in doing this research, you've got to work through your discomfort. I, as a researcher, have to be open to finding men as they are, not as I want men to be. The road to equality is lined with uncomfortable truths. And a lot of it is difficult to hear. And uh, I, I've, been on, it's, I've been on a lot of dates with uh, women who are feminists. And people wouldn't believe it, but I'm very compatible with feminists because ultimately we are actually on the same side. And a lot, a lot of these people are, are very compassionate towards men, but the problem is they don't understand. And uh, on these on these dates, they I've shown on my page beforehand, definitely. And uh, they find it uncomfortable, but they do also find it thought-provoking. And it's, it's difficult speaking about them because it is hard to hear, uh, but that doesn't mean it's not helpful. Like thicker skin, more patience, and the ability, as you said, to sort of sit in the discomfort is a, a, a very difficult but important ability. Okay, so that is where I'm going to pause part one of this podcast. In part two, Susie and myself will be touching further on the causes of male suicide. We'll be discussing topics such as parental alienation, fathers losing contact to their children, men's relation to food, the purgatory of men who haven't taken their lives, but also don't feel fully alive either. And of course, what can we do to help? We'll also have questions from you guys, so please do come back and stick around and hear the second part of my conversation of Susie in a few days' time. Thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you all soon. 
Okay, I bet you didn't think it'd be this soon, but I just wanted to jump back on here and give you a little bit of contact information for those of you who may be struggling with some of these emotions right now. And actually the best place to find help, I think, is on Susie's website. And if you go on suicideresearch.co.uk, there's a whole list of really fantastic resources that I'm sure would love to talk to you and hear about your story. So please do get in contact with them if you need to. And they are NHS 24, Samaritans, Calm, Papyrus, The Mix, Men's Minds Matter, Andy's Club, Maytree, The Listening Place, James's Place, Sean's Place, and of course, Human. Um, They are all UK based, and Human, I believe, offers support for anyone around the world. I'll also add these as contact details in the caption. So I hope they're useful, and that's all from me. Goodbye.